Hello, this is Curtis Edwards, Vice President of Investor Relations at Hudson Investing. Are you ready to start building your multifamily portfolio? Kent and I are excited to announce our newest deal in Spartanburg, South Carolina. This 157-unit property offers a unique chance to acquire a B-class value-add property for just $120,000 per door. This is well below replacement costs. De-risking the deal even further is a favorable loan assumption with over six years remaining at 3.73% fixed. With 50 economic development projects underway and 70,000 jobs within a 20-minute drive, the South Carolina upstate region is primed for above-average job, population, and rent growth. Don't miss out on this exclusive deal. Find the link in the description notes to learn how you can invest. There's this idea out there, like even when you read online, where it kind of sounds like you want to hide your assets, right? It seems like that's what you're trying to do with all this is like set up these LLCs and these different things so that you're hiding your assets so that they can't see what you have. But in reality, what you're saying is is very different. Like in reality, when you get into that situation, you have to disclose what you have. Otherwise, as you said, I mean, you're going to be lying to the court, you're going to be in perjury. So the right way to approach this is totally the opposite. And I think people need to be thinking about it in a different way, right? You're not trying to hide what you have. You're trying to just be transparent with what you have, but you're layering these protections on like these walls, this armor, so that the folks can't can't get to these different levels, right? Down exactly. It's like you're not you hiding have. your castle. I have a big castle. I just right. have a really cool moat around it with a really big fence and really good archers up there that are sharpshooter archers. Yeah. And we're not trying to pretend we don't own a castle. And so you want to look at it through a litigation standpoint. You want the optics to be good. You, mm-hmm. you know, hiding is a one-way ticket for a fraudulent transfer argument. Welcome to Right Around Real Estate, the show about how to passively invest like a pro. On each episode, I interview real estate experts who give their top investing advice, strategies, and tools, and I break down their insights into practical steps to avoid the pitfalls and make better investments. I want to help you passively invest like a pro. This is Ritter on Real Estate, and I'm your host, Kent Ritter. Welcome to Ritter on Real Estate, where we teach you how to passively invest like a pro. We've got a returning guest today, and I'm very excited to have him back on. His name is Brian T. Bradley, and he has recently just voted America's Best Attorney for 2020. So that's pretty awesome credential. Very, very happy to have you here today. If you guys remember from the last episode, I believe that was episode 16, Brian was on and he was talking with us about asset protection, which is one of the most important things you can think about as an investor. You know, oftentimes we focus on how do we get this money, right? How do we get the money coming in, the cash flow coming in? But even just as important is how do you keep that money, right? And how do you limit your liability and how do you make sure that you're protecting yourself as you're building your wealth? So Brian wanted to come back on today because they have a new product out that I think is really interesting for folks, a little more accessible to folks that that aren't quite in that high net worth category, but are starting out and still need protection. And we were just talking before the show, I think again, that there continues just to be misconceptions around asset protection, especially around LLCs, what you need, what you don't. And so we're going to dig into that a little bit more too and and clear up some of the misconceptions there. So Brian, thanks for coming on again and appreciate you coming back on the show. 
Yeah, thanks, Kent, for having me back on. You know, I really appreciate it. I'm excited about this for your listeners. And, you know, we're going to blow up some more of the status quo and clear up more misconceptions that I see a lot of clients that call in have, specifically about, you know, LLCs and then talking about this new trust for that under the 1 million net market where I see a lot of potential problems coming in. No, that's awesome. And, and on the last episode, we really ran through the whole gamut, right? You went through from start to finish, different types of LLCs and trusts and different products. And, and I think as we went through that, it's a good overview, but now we can dig in a little bit more, right, to some of the things that, that we're hearing day to day. So why don't you just, why don't we start there? Why don't you kind of give us a recap to get everybody back thinking about asset protection, and then we can start to dig into some of those specifics. Yeah, I think you hit, you know, like the start of it pretty well of, you know, like as investors, we're looking at, you know, return on investment, where's the next deal at, caps, all of this metrics, but we're not thinking about, okay, what happens when it's not sunshine and rainbows and what happens Mm -hmm. if we do get sued and I'm building up this legacy, I don't want to lose it all. Mm -hmm. And so asset protection really is just a recap. It's about peace of mind. And then we do that through different legal tools, you know, LLCs, limited partnerships, and asset protection trusts. And the idea really is just how collectible you are. There's a saying like, in human nature, you want to be as pretty as possible to attract the best mate as possible. In the legal sense, in asset protection, we want to make you as ugly as possible. <laughs> um, and so it's kind of counterintuitive, but it's just the way that the system is set up. And what we're using, again, are LLCs limited partnerships and these asset protection trusts. It's just like layering. You want to create different layers at different starting points as you go along. Just like winter, think about winter. When it gets really cold outside, you dress in layers. You know, you have a Mm -hmm. base layer, a mid layer, and then you have an outer shell layer. You know, it's more flexible when things go bad or you're hot and you're skiing or you're ice fishing, you can take different layers off. You know, the base layer, the mid layer, the outer shell layer. The same thing goes with your asset protection plan. That base layer is your LLC. That's going to be your holding company for your real estate. The mid layer is going to be a limited partnership management company that's going to own those LLCs. And then your outer shell layer is going to be an asset protection trust. And we went over the different types, offshore, domestic, and then the hybrid bridge trust Mm -hmm. um, as the different options there in the last show. But there's a lot of misconceptions just about LLCs. And, you know, especially like charging orders, jurisdiction shopping of different states, series LLCs, and a really big one, anonymity, you know, that we fall into. So I think we really need to clear up some of these misconceptions that people hear from their CPAs or Google searches or just, unfortunately, law firm salesmen, you know, like because law firms have just become sales industries. And so they're just selling a product. So, you know, like here, we're just trying to educate you and clear up these misconceptions. Yeah, so I, I think that's a really good way to frame it, how you line those up, those common misconceptions. And, and I can just speak to my own personal experience. You know, when I set out to be an investor, I knew enough to think that I needed an LLC, right? Because if you're going to start a business, you know, you need to set up an LLC or some sort, of, some sort of structure. But as I got online, exactly like you said, not only was there conflicting information, but there's just so many options and so many different ways to go. And like you said, should you incorporate in a different state? Should you do your own state, right? And all, and all the different ways to do it, and all the different law firms to set it up. You know, I kind of, my head just started spinning, you know, at a certain point and didn't really know which way to go. And I think that's, a, that's where a lot of people start, right? And something you said to me, it really struck home before we 
started recording was, you know, it's really those folks that are starting out and are less sophisticated that are prone to make more mistakes and really need that protection, right? So it's like this group that's starting out, there's really not a system of layers, like you said, set up for them, right? It really caters more to, to the high net worth folks. So I appreciate you helping us clear up some of this. So, so all that being said, I just, I just feel because I went through the same process of trying to figure it out. So let's start at the beginning. What's the first misconception and how can we bring some clarity? Yeah. So let's just start with, because everybody, wherever you, wherever you start, the foundational layer is an LLC, a limited liability company. And all you ever hear about is sunshine and rainbows of them and thinking, well, I'll just get an LLC. I'm liability is completely gone away. But they don't really listen and learn that. What's the first word, first letter? Like L, limited. They say it point blank in the name. This is limited liability. And the common you know, like issue with LLCs is that they can get pierced, piercing the corporate veil, alter egos. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're really, really easy to pierce. And Rule of thumb, when you're creating an LLC and you're just starting out, the LLC should be created in the state where the asset's at because you don't transfer state laws. And so I'll break this down in a second, but we just realize when you're creating an LLC, the lawsuit's going to be coming when you're challenged in the state where that asset's at. So it's going to be that state law that applies. Mm -hmm. And so the problem with LLCs is when they're created, you're generally calling your CPA or a real estate attorney or a business attorney not someone who's dealing with asset protection and liability. And your CPA is looking at it for what? To maximize and minimize your taxes. So they're going to say S Corp or something like that. That's just a tax strategy. That's not protecting any assets. Mm -hmm. Um, So, And generally, you're creating them when you're just starting out in your own personal name. The problem is that courts have a tendency to completely disregard single-member LLCs. So they're basically worthless. I'm fine and comfortable with a single member LLC, but what you want is that single member LLC that's holding your real estate to then be held or owned in a multi-member limited partnership, you know, not you personally. And what you're doing when you're doing this is you're now properly layering your protection system, just like your clothing when you go outside. And then the next big issue and confusion is, you know, like what we call charging orders. You know, people really have a lot of confusion on where to set these LLCs up in. And like you said it yourself, you're researching, you're getting all this inf- information. You know, do I go to Delaware, Wyoming, Nevada, Arizona, right. like Florida, mm-hmm. Texas, like all over the place. And what a charging order is referring to is how much a creditor can collect from you, the owner of the LLC. So good state charging orders have the charging order being the sole remedy. You know, basically a creditor with a judgment against you is going to be entitled only to the limited remedy of that order. They're not going to be able to bleed into other assets or into your personal assets and extend beyond that. That's not how things really work in reality because of, you know, I think we touched upon last time, the court's superpower that they have, which is a court of equity. They can do whatever a judge wants to do for an order just to equalize Mm -hmm. rights and wrongs. And so the question comes down to, do I set up these LLCs in Delaware, Wyoming, Texas, Nevada? And that's generally what clients want to ask and want to know when they call, okay, I'm in Oregon, but I want to create Texas or, you know, Wyoming LLC. And you hear about these states and they're really good about protecting their LLCs and some have privacy, you know, like anonymity. Mm -hmm. And they say, oh, it's better to do that. So I'm just going to go do that because my CPA or somebody on the internet told me to. But it's really not that simple. What really matters is what are you holding? So let's say, for example, it's California real estate 
and you're holding, you know, and setting up a Wyoming LLC because your CPA or something you saw on the internet told you to do that. And you think it was better. And you go ahead and hold a piece of California real estate in this Wyoming LLC. And now you're paying California franchise tax. What you've done is just convert your Wyoming LLC to a California LLC because you're doing business in the state of California. Not only are you going to be you know, paying the franchise tax in California, but if you ever have a liability issue in California or any other state that's not Wyoming, you know, which means like you're getting sued in that state where the asset's at, a judge in California or whatever state it is, isn't going to apply Wyoming law. Like what law are they going to apply? Like the law of the state that the asset's right. in. California, because that's our example. A judge in California or any other state doesn't care that your LLC is in Wyoming and registered in Wyoming. It means nothing in the damage laws, tort laws, injury laws, and judgments. That's the state that the asset's in. So for assets, like I said, that are real estate specifically, we recommend using the state that the real estate is located because you're not gaining anything by using another state. You're literally just doubling your maintenance cost. Mm-hmm. And now you also have to maintain the LLC in two states. So just keep it simple. And then as you level up, you have those LLCs owned by a limited partnership. Those tax filings and K-1s flow through to that limited partner, that limited partnership, that management company. So it's still only one tax filing. So you're simplifying your tax system. You're making it the optics of it look better. And again, you're not filing multiple tax returns at that point. And is that limited? So I understand about you should have the LLC that owns the property in the state where the property is. And I think that is, that is one big misconception, right? Cause that's what like everybody on the internet's selling to you, right? Do my, you know, your Delaware, your wherever, Wyoming, Wyoming Delaware, like Nevada, Delaware. like, yeah, there's, so that's great to clear that up. Cause like, that's the first thing people always seem to always like misconstrue, but then the limited partnership, where should that exist? That is a second tier level. That's where you actually want to start looking for strong jurisdictions like Arizona, Nevada, Delaware. And it's simply because you're starting to look for another barrier of entry for a lawsuit. Your first one's the LLC. Make the optics easy. We're not transferring law. So don't double up your maintenance costs. Mm-hmm. And the next level up, because you want to create a jurisdictional separation, should be in one of those strong charging order jurisdictions. The issue is because of the U.S. Constitution, full faith and credit clause, it's not going to offer much more protection. You're just making the person suing you make another argument and pay more fees. The real strength of it comes when you add in an asset protection trust, but you need a limited partnership to do that Mm -hmm. because limited partnerships are different than LLCs in the sense that they have dual classes of ownership. One's a general partnership that holds assets and manages them. The other one is the ownership portion and control of it. That ownership portion of it would be the bridge trust or an asset protection trust. You don't have the split personality of ownership of an, with an LLC. So that's why that management company that owns all these LLCs should be a limited partnership because of the dual classifications of management versus ownership. Gotcha. So so that, that's really helpful to understand. And so the state and jurisdiction actually does come into play. People just really aren't typically applying it at the right level. They're applying it at the LLC level. Correct. They need to be adding, adding the, different, the additional layer, right? They need to put the sweater on and making sure that they've got that extra layer of protection. Right. Then the, the state really does matter. You want to look for states that have 
uh, what did you call it? A, a stronger, stronger charging order protection charging for the members, the member managers. Yeah, perfect. And states like that, I heard you say Arizona. Yeah, Nevada. we like Arizona. We like Arizona for the limited partnership because they have really strong charging order protection for limited partnerships, specifically a specific statute for limited mm-hmm. partnership charging order protection. And then you have you know, like your standard flavors of Delaware, Wyoming, Nevada, and that's second layer is where you want to use a stronger jurisdictional option. Gotcha. And um, yeah. And then the next big issue that I hear, because there's just a, I see a lot of salesmanship on series LLC, but not a lot of information yeah. that's being talked about the series LLC. Yeah. I've heard and, a lot about these. Yeah. And the big misconception when it comes to the series LLC, you know, the issue is that they're very young, you know, with no case law to rely on if that series separation is even going to be upheld. And there's a limited number of states that even have series LLC statutes, you know, for example, both coasts, you know, like California, Oregon, Washington, like the other East Coast, most states don't have and recognize the series LLC structure. And so what this means, if you're living in a state that doesn't recognize the series LLC, you won't get the benefit that's intended of them. So these states like California will charge you the franchise tax on each child series that you're creating. But for liability, they're just going to disregard each child series and treat it as a traditional single LLC. So there's no stopping the bleeding of the lawsuit. It's just completely going to be a disregarded entity. And once the veil may be pierced, which is easy to do, all the assets are up for grabs now. Gotcha. Okay. So I actually didn't realize that. So what you're saying is the series LLC, which is kind of a new fancy thing, right? It just follows kind of the same logic as a traditional LLC where you're saying it really depends on the laws of the state, right? So if you have a series LLC set up and like you're saying, California doesn't recognize that. So they're going to look at that like a traditional LLC, like everything's bundled together, right? And and you're not going to have that protection that you think you have by feeling like you have these properties in different like child LLCs under the series. In reality, they're going to look at it all as one bucket. Correct. And California courts have already came out and said this. You know, like, and this is just you know, like the big misconception. I like series LLCs. I use them situational. Like everything needs to be situational. Mm-hmm. I only recommend a series LLC if the asset is in a state that is, you know, recognizes series LLCs and have series LLC legislation. And you, the client, live in a state that has a series LLC recognition because yeah, you can own Texas properties and live in California, but by you being a resident of California, you have liability in California just by driving your car and living and breathing and moving around in your business. Right. So what happens if you personally get sued for something that's not related to that Texas property? Now that series LLC is completely worthless again. And so that's where you need to look at what happens in court. Do these states recognize them? Am I have a false sense of security or do I have a real sense of security that actually is going to work? And to sit there and I hear people say, oh, well, there's no case law on the series LLC. That's a benefit. I've heard that argument. I'm a trial lawyer. Like I've never heard in a single situation where a judge says, where's your brief? And there's no case law on this that I'm going to say like, well, that's a strength, your honor. I have nothing to say. I have nothing to present. (laughs) So that's not a strength when like, for example, asset protection trust, I can go in with 40 years of case law and say, Mm -hmm. well, here, 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 here in this case, Anderson case, Grant case, this case right here, here's Mm -hmm. the ruling, here's the holding, here's the analysis, the why, here's how it's applicable to our situation. 
You can't do that with a series LLC. So in that case, it's really leaving much more up to that individual judge's opinion, right? Because there's really nothing for him to have to follow. Exactly. And that was, that's a really good analogy on that because now it's the judge's superpower in the court of equity to make the decision. Mm-hmm. And that's what you don't want. You want mm-hmm. to be able to maintain strength in your assets. And that's mm-hmm. with, you know, taking away jurisdictional options and a court superpower. Mm-hmm. And then the next big misconception that I get with LLCs a lot is this whole theory of anonymity and how it even works. And the thought that, you know, you can just create an anonymous LLC and that you just completely disappear. It can never be found. You know, so the basic thought is that you can create this anonymous, you know, Wyoming LLC where you, the LLC member's name is not available to the public. And then you can just completely avoid a lawsuit altogether. And that's just completely false. You know, so when your LLC is sued, you're going to be legally required to appear and defend it or a default judgment is going to be entered against you. And then the complaint will simply be, once it is in litigation, amended once you're forced to appear, and then your name's going to be added personally into that lawsuit. So you're still going to get served no matter what. what, what no matter what. Whether your you name's per- or not, right? Exactly. There's a person of service that could be attached to that LLC in Wyoming. Mm-hmm. The sole purpose that guy's job is, is to take a legal document that he's been served and say, hey, Kent, here's the service. You've been served. Now you need to go find the lawyer, the defendant. Right. Like you can't just pretend that it doesn't exist. Otherwise, yeah. you're going to have a default judgment entered against you. I mean, that makes total sense. So I guess what's the case for the anonymity? <laughs> anonymity. Anonymity. There we go. And, yeah. and what are you advertising about it? Because, I mean, that makes total sense. Like, they're going to find you. Yeah. The benefit of it is in its functionality of day-to-day running a business to where you're not going to be personally harassed, like your home residence or wherever it is, people won't have access to that by just Googling you and looking you up. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It just cuts down on the personal harassment of angry clients or people. Sure. But once you're served, you're served. Then the right. lawsuit commences. And what's even worse is that if you want secrecy to even work, this is also known as lying under oath. And that's just a one-way ticket to jail. An example of <laughs> <Yeah>. this is... <laughs> that doesn't sound like something that, you want to do. No, it's like very shortly after a judgment's entered against you, you, the individual, the creditor, the person that sued you, you know, has the legal right to demand information about the assets owned by you. Mm-hmm. And the courts enforce these rights very strongly and very broadly. And so at this point in litigation, the only way to keep an asset anonymous or a secret is to lie about them and commit perjury. And so that's why we don't advocate for hiding. We just prefer to have full disclosure of proper, you know, of, and a proper mm-hmm. asset protection plan in place and just set it up to work as it's intended and have very strong layers as you need them and build up. And so we do that. That's the first two layers, like the LLC, you know, the limited partnership that owns those LLCs. And then it works best when you add that outer layer shell, asset protection trust or a bridge trust that kind of combines the offshore power of the Cook Islands with statutory non-recognition, mm-hmm. but it's built back to be classified by the IRS as a domestic trust by maintaining mm-hmm. IRS compliance. So that's like, that's like putting the big goose down on, right? When you're talking about layers, that's the yeah. big boy. It's really going to protect you. So, so like, I, I, big- yeah, I was going to say, I, I do want to talk about that, but I had a, a question going back to the idea we were talking about of like these, the anonymity and these different things. So if you're you're getting sued, right? You've been served. And like, it seems to be the point you made as I've come back to this now is like 
there's this idea out there, like even when you read online, where it kind of sounds like you want to hide your assets, right? It seems like that's what you're trying to do with all this is like set up these LLCs and these different things so that you're hiding your assets so that they can't see what you have. But in reality, what you're saying is, is very different. And like in reality, when you get into that situation, you have to disclose what you have. Otherwise, as you said, I mean, you're going to be lying to the court. You're going to be in perjury. So the right way to approach this is totally the opposite. And I think people need to be thinking about it in a different way, right? You're not trying to hide what you have. You're trying to just be transparent with what you have, but you're layering these protections on like these walls, this armor, so that the folks can't can't get to these different levels, right? Down exactly. It's like you're not you hiding your castle. I have a big castle. I just right. have a really cool moat around it with a really big fence and really good archers up there that are sharpshooter archers. Yeah. And yeah. we're not trying to pretend we don't own a castle. And so you want to look at it through a litigation standpoint. You want the optics to be good. You, mm-hmm. you know, hiding is a one-way ticket for a fraudulent transfer argument, and mm-hmm. that's not good. So mm-hmm. when the optics are good and we're not doing things to hide or hinder or delay, you know, the rights of a, of a creditor, now we're in a good position of strength. And then mm-hmm. when we have strong mm-hmm. jurisdictional choices, depending on where you're at, and especially when you start using asset protection trust, now you have potentially the strength of statutory non-recognition. That's where we don't care if you're suing us. We don't even care if you got a million dollar judgment against us because you are not collectible. The assets then at that point, we dropped the domestic compliance, went offshore. If you want a penny from us, we have to agree to it because they're safe and secure in the Cook Islands until we tell them to transfer it. And that won't even work because in the grant case, US First Grant, the wife instructed the offshore trustee to give the government, I think it was like $36 million back. And that offshore trustee said no, because this is under duress and we're protecting the assets from duress, even against the IRS and the government. Wow. And so because, because it was out of her control at that point, she couldn't be held in contempt of court and the assets just sat there safe. Interesting. So what happens, I'm just curious on on that example, how does that play out? Like, a year, a couple years down the line, I mean, like you want to access your money and you're living in the US. Like, like, how does that play out? You still get access to live and invest in your money. What it is, is the judgment creditors have no access to it. And so what would happen is like, oh, I'm being sued. You would get served. You'd be panicking. You would call me and my partner, Doug, you know, and we first would try to calm you down and be like, it's not as bad as you think. It's like a home flipper walking into a wreck and seeing gold mine and most people mm-hmm, walking in mm-hmm. and be like, just get the heck out of this property. Right. Like, there's no way you want me to buy this. <laughs> We're used to this. Just like you guys are used to train wreck properties. Mm-hmm. And so nine times out of 10, it's not as bad as you think. Now, let's say you're the one percenters, you know, and we're like, hey, it is bad. And like, we agree we should trigger the trust and migrate the assets over there. That's where we, the attorneys would declare a state of duress, not you, the client, you would just acknowledge that we're doing it. We would sign it literally a document and just like write me, attorney Brian Bradley declaring a state of duress to the lawsuit, send it over to the offshore trustee who's in second position in the Cook Islands. And then that would remove you as the primary trustee. That offshore trustee then steps in as a primary trustee. And that happens within about two days. Now you're no longer in compliance with the IRS codes to make it a classified as a domestic trust because you're removed as a trustee. Now it's a purely foreign offshore asset protection trust at that moment. And but so you, still you, have, you, you still have access. You still have access to the money. Then, yeah. And then what we do at that point, because it would probably be needed, 
is we would start deciding like, do we need to actually set up offshore bank accounts? And do we need to start transferring equity or not? Like what's the status of this? And we start tracking the case and see if we need to take it to the next step and actually start taking equity and moving it offshore. Gotcha. Gotcha. Appreciate that. So this is, I mean, this is really good. This is really enlightening. I mean, it's definitely all very interesting. It it sounds like there's all these layers. I mean, it sounds pretty complicated. I I think you do a great job of breaking it down pretty simply, but, but still there's kind of, we talk about going offshore and doing these things. You know, it sounds like something that's built for somebody that's, you know, (laughs) multi, multi millionaire, right? Like it's, it's the allure of it, I think, because you're just, we're so not used to understanding doing things offshore. And it's actually easier systems because everything like banking is online and it's really quick. There's a lot of checks and balances in the system. We're just not used to it because we just used to go into chase down the street, you know, or our local family mortgage guy. It's the same process. The processes don't change. It's gotcha. just because it's in an offshore trust, it doesn't mean that you, it's just like a, any other type of trust that you're investing in and out of um, yeah. or your LLC. The system is actually more streamlined because now instead of having a bunch of parts that you have to manage independently, they're all bundled up in the one nice area and it's cleaner. Banks actually can look at this if you wanted to, you know, like look at it and understand the system mm-hmm. a lot better. And they're actually are more comfortable with the system now. And so it actually cleans things up. And most clients we find, if they ever do have to transfer and want to go offshore, they never want to bring it back because they realize it's stronger and it's more functional and easier for them to use and manage. Because generally, like once the lawsuit goes away and we force a settlement, you know, like a penny on the dollar, you have the option to reinstill the domestic portion of the trust and have it back to being classified domestic. Most clients choose not to, not because they're panicking, but because they realize this a lot easier and cleaner. Um, and so, yeah, most don't actually reinstill the domestic options and the cost of it, you know, like the, of going offshore really high, you know, like generally $50,000 plus the hybrid option, the bridge trust, you know, 30,000 generally with the asset management limited partnership. And so Doug and I were like, well, people that 1 million below net worth, you know, like they also want an offshore component for stronger Mm -hmm. protection than just being in an LLC or anything purely domestic for the reasons that we discussed already today, you know, and on, right. on the show before. So we believe that this segment of investors shouldn't be left out of the dark. So that we ended up creating what's called the quantum living trust. And it's opened up the doors to who can actually afford really strong layered asset protection with an offshore component to their planning. And so the quantum living trust basically gets you into an offshore component of the asset protection planning world that would only be available to the high net worth clients at affordable entry spots. And so for about the cost of a traditional living trust, which is, you know, around $8,000 plus an AMLP, like the limited partnership, six grand, you now have an offshore component like the bridge trust as you start and scale up. Mm-hmm. And the quantum living trust is like its big brother, you know, the, the bridge trust, the quantum living trust is a discretionary, irrevocable trust with very strong creditor protection with spendthrift provisions. So in layman terms, what this means is that it's an asset protection trust that protects the beneficiary you from creditors It's created by you for you as your own beneficiary. Unlike standard trust, a quantum living trust is connected to a fully offshore what's called primary trust. This, that's the quantum trust. Mm-hmm. And the way it's connected is by what we call a subtrust. 
And that's the derivative of the primary trust. So you have the primary trust offshore. We create a secondary subtrust domestically, which is a derivative of it. And so the primary offshore trust is that offshore component. Now, if we compare the quantum trust to the bridge trust, yeah. you know, unlike the bridge trust, the quantum living trust is not individually registered offshore. That's the limitation. And so what this means is that the quantum living trust cannot by itself be triggered to cross the bridge if you're sued, since it's not registered offshore at all. The quantum living trust has to rely on that primary offshore quantum trust for its offshore defense. So you're paying the extra money for the bridge trust because it's registered offshore by itself from day one. It is a full offshore asset protection trust, Cook Island Foreign Asset Protection Trust from day one, registered and all. And then we build the bridge back. The quantum living trust has to rely off the quantum aspect of it. And so it's because of the limitations of that, that the subtrust not being registered offshore, that once a client hits 1 million net worth mark or more, it's essentially they've outgrown the quantum living trust and it's really worth the additional effort to upgrade to the full bridge trust at that point and have the trust individually registered offshore without having to worry about subcomponents. And gotcha. so for a fa- yeah, so for the family, you know, if 1 million in net worth or below, a lawsuit can be even more devastating to you, you know. Sure. Now you have a way to get very strong asset protection and add that missing offshore component that you generally, you know, only hear like I said about the high net worth families that have and it's flexible and scalable. Mhm. Is the LLC and the limited partnership portion, I mean, is, does that all kind of roll together so it's a holistic strategy? Is that- it does. The setup would be even with the quantum living trust would be the same. LLC, foundational base layer, limited partnership owns those. And then that would either go into the quantum living trust or the bridge trust. Mm-hmm. Once you outgrow the quantum trust, what we would do is just replace the quantum living trust with the bridge trust and then forward the cost to the bridge trust where you're just paying the difference. Gotcha. And is that, so if you're starting fresh, I understand how, how it can all be set up in the right way and come together. Yeah. What, what if people already have a few LLCs, a limited partnership, they've got other things going on. I mean, how can those folks kind of bring it all together? Yeah. And that's how most people come to us is they have, you know, 15 LLCs. They may have mm-hmm. a revocable living trust. Sometimes they have a management company, sometimes not. So we look at what they have. And generally, if, you know, we're not going to try to recreate the whole wheel. We're going to use what you have. Mm-hmm. Um, so those LLCs would then be merged into and held into the limited partnership. And then we would come in and add the asset protection trust to that and then connect the revocable living trust to the asset protection trust just for being able to identify beneficiaries and death directives and financial directives for afterlife and stuff like that. If they already have the management company, maybe they're missing the asset protection trust. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, like I've had a couple of high net worth clients that had a domestic purely asset protection trust and they were California residents with the Nevada asset protection trust. And we had to go through the whole Kilco versus Steelman 2012 conversation to where, hey, like, sorry, California doesn't recognize out of state mm-hmm. asset protection trust. So then we just ended up dropping the domestic asset protection trust and replaced it with the bridge trust. Man, it just seems like there is, it doesn't seem that complicated when you lay it out where it's like LLCs in the state where you're operating, right? Then limited partnership somewhere that has the most protection. There's a few states that, that work, but, but when you, 
when you go online or when I just talk to people and to see what they have set up, like it just seems so much more complicated. Like, like there's so many situations where people are like, oh yeah, I've got a, got the Wyoming thing going on over here. Or I went to this seminar in Las Vegas, right? And I signed up for this Nevada LLC or, or whatever it is, right? And so, I mean, in those situations, I guess, what's the right thing to do if, if you're like, well, you know, I bought one of these and now I'm hearing this conversation and I've realized that, that really it's not doing me any benefit. It might actually be doing me some harm. How do you like unwind and, and start so, over? Yeah, in the that's right a position? great question. We try to salvage what we can. Sometimes we just have to dissolve a worthless LLC because why are you just going to, you're just going to keep spending money to not use it, or mm. you're going to force yourself to use it when there's something better. That might be a better decision just to dissolve it, right the ship and get it in the right direction. If we can salvage it, we will. And then you just need to, I think part of it is just kind of, I look at it as like insurance. You know, a lot of law firms run themselves like a business, like insurance. They're not trying to learn everything because it's really hard to learn everything. Mm -hmm. So they try to cast a large net. What's the largest net you can cast nationally? An LLC. And then you can stuff everybody into an LLC no matter where they're at. Mm -hmm. And then just say, hey, here you go. And then they make their money. Be careful when you talk to law firms like that. And if they're not doing a whole breakdown over your liability, your risk, how you own it, what you own, the position you own it in, do you own it personally? How much equity do you have in it? Where's your personal risk come from? And do a whole structured analysis of you can't personally, can't business, can't investments and all of it. <laughs> I would be really cautious on if I'm going to do business with that firm or not. Are you only talking to me about an LLC? Maybe that's where you need to start, which is fine. What other options are there? Because there's lots of ways to skin a cat. We're just trying to find the sure. one that fits for your situation at that time and then give you direction on where as you grow, you're going to go to because that system is going to have to change as your buckets change. Mm -hmm. As you get more successful, mm -hmm. you're going to add more buckets of assets and income coming in. So we have to make sure that the buckets as they grow are properly protected and scaled up and easy to manage. So you want it to be flexible. So let me ask you a simple question. Should you hold any assets in your personal name? No, rich people don't. So why would you? Okay. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Simple answer. Has, yeah. If it has a key and can go boom and you have to have insurance on it. No, separate it out. At least foundational LLC, separate mm -hmm. it out. Mm -hmm. Just too much in life and hiccups can happen. So you want to take away one layer as you can and then right. add more protection. And so if you want to be rich, copy the rich. The right. rich want all things in their personal name. They get the beneficial use and enjoyment of them, but their business entities own them. Their trust protect them. Mm -hmm. um, mimic the people you want to be like that. Do it at a high level and just go from there. Yeah. Success leaves clues, right? That's like the famous Tony Robbins quote. Yeah. I love and Tony Robbins. I'm like diving deep into his stuff right now. Well, that's a whole nother episode because I'm, yeah. I'm a fan too. Yeah. There's a lot of great stuff in there, yeah. but uh, I had another question. Now we're talking about Tony Robbins. Now I forget <laughs> the other question, but the, so yeah, so LLCs or don't hold assets in your own name. I know what it was. I guess it's more of a statement is I think probably the last episode, you got me thinking about this in a different way because I always thought about the risk of what's the risk. Like if I own a property, what's the risk that somebody gets hurt on that property or something happens involving that property. And because of that, I get sued. Right. Yeah. But really what you're thinking about is, is so much more holistic than that. It's in your daily life as you're driving or interacting with people or 
or heck, somebody's at your, your personal home and they slip and fall or, you know, or whatever. Some of those things are covered under insurance. But like what's happening in your daily life can affect all of your assets that you own. And that's what you're trying to really protect against, right? Is Exactly. The whole spectrum. Yeah. You may not have a lot of risk from your asset, but you may have a lot of risk from your business. Right. Your business, your day job, doctor, you know, depending on what kind of doctor you are, you could have a lot of risk. Mm-hmm. Or maybe you don't have much, but you have a lot of risk from your assets. You may be investing in passive syndications. You don't have a lot of risk in that passive syndication. But then if you're the one sponsoring it, now you do. Right. So, if you are driving your car and you T-bone somebody, the, generally the liability comes from the places that you don't think about. That's what wipes mm-hmm. you out. The stuff that's negligent. You know, mm-hmm. you're not trying to prepare or plan for it. And when you think of a pie chart, I always, when I do these teaching seminars and things is, there's the things you know, the things you don't know, and the things you don't know that you don't know. Mm-hmm. Most people's liability when they start out are in the, I don't know what I don't know. Because if you know things, I don't need to ask you a question. If I know I don't know something, I can be like, hey, Kent, what do you think about this? I need an answer to that. Right. Thanks. If I don't know that I don't know something, I would never be able to answer a question to get to help me out. That's where most people get wiped out from. We try to shrink that amount as much as possible. That makes total sense. I think that's a really good way to think about this. I think you've done a great job of kind of breaking this down in a very simple way. It really isn't complicated if you just, it's like, keep it simple, stupid, right? And just- It, it really is. Set it up and with those three layers. I like what you said again about when you're talking with a law firm, what are some of the questions that, that they should be asking you so that you know- you know that they're looking at you holistically, right? And I think that's really good. Are there questions that you would recommend that people ask the law firm so they can kind of get down to that? Absolutely. I would just look at what percentage of your clients do you represent that are just asset protection? Or is this just something you dabble in or do a little bit on the side? Mm -hmm. Um, Because then they're not going to really know the gambit of everything. They're going to just go on to, I went to a seminar, I did a continuing legal education course and they told me about LLCs. Mm -hmm. Everybody should use an LLC. That's what they're going to pump and push mm-hmm. out. Um, that's their sale. Okay, that's great. Doesn't mean they know much about asset protection. They just took a course and they know how to set up an LLC and get a quick thousand bucks out of it. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, so are they doing a full risk analysis over every aspect of your life? And what kind of products do they have for asset protection and are they knowledgeable of? With your personal profession and your asset and investment strategy, how many clients do they have that match that? person type because Mm -hmm. some people don't want to do with any real estate investors and they do different types of clients for asset protection. Um, and that's what they're really good at. But, and if you have a real estate investor with a lot of real estate, what's their network like? Who do they affiliate with? Do they also work with wealth management guys and CPAs? Because some clients to me come, they don't have a wealth management team. They don't know about cost segregation. They don't know how to do anything to manage decreased tax mitigation strategies. So it's like, let's steer you to these guys and get the CPA. So what kind of team do these guys have? Then it shows mm-hmm. how much they dive into the topic of asset protection, wealth preservation. And then, you know, they're probably, if they don't have an answer, their team will find an answer real quick. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it goes back to this idea of like, like specificity. You can't be good at everything. You have to think about lawyers the same way maybe you think as doctors, right? They have different specialties. Like, you know, they, they don't do everything. They specialize in something that focus on it. Lawyers are the same way, right? And, and maybe that's something that a lot of people don't understand. And, so. it, and it would. And a good example is, oh, this guy knows a lot about asset protection. I'm in a real estate deal. Can you negotiate my real estate transactional document? Or, no, I'm not a real estate attorney. You know, like yeah. I'll protect what you have. 
Let's, yeah. We'll go through that analysis, but I'm not going to draft up your agreement. I'm not going to negotiate your real estate closing and things like that. Mm -hmm. That's not what I do. Same mm -hmm. thing. Like, Don't ask your real estate attorney to create an asset protection structure for you. Don't ask your business attorney to mm -hmm. do that. Don't ask your CPA because they're not a lawyer. All they mm -hmm. care about is taxes, but they shouldn't be giving you legal advice. So you got to go to the right specialist to get the right answer. Yeah. No, I appreciate that. We talk a lot about building out your team. What's the right team? I mean, asset protection, that's just another arrow in the quiver, you know, another teammate you need to have on the team. That makes total sense. Well, Brian, I mean, thanks so much for coming back today and, and continuing to demystify this topic that there's just so much misinformation out there. So appreciate you being the source of truth. People want to learn more or, or want to see more of your education. You know, how do they get a hold of you? Yeah, they can jump on my website, www.btblegal.com. Email me, brian at btblegal.com. I'm on LinkedIn a lot. You know, like I just like to go in and I'm in a lot of groups and investment groups and answering people's questions. We do free consultations because I just like to get people to have education, whether you use this or not. Mm -hmm. I just rather have you make an educated decision. And then the cool thing is, you know, if, if you guys have the time, if this goes out in time also, October 14th to the 17th, we're going to be um, one of the presenters on the first day, Thursday, the 15th at the Multifamily Global Investment Summit. And so, Fantastic. yeah. And so you guys can register for that and learn from a lot of really top-notch professionals as well as go through the presentation with us. Oh, very good. I'll make sure I check that out. It sounds like a great summit and I'll make sure we include all that in the show notes so that folks can, can get a hold of you because I think you're just a wealth of information. And again, thanks for coming back and continuing to help the audience. No problem. Thanks With for that. having me back. Thanks, Brian. Thanks for listening to another great episode of Ritter on Real Estate. Hit the subscribe button to make sure you don't miss out on the content that will make you a better investor. Also, visit KentRitter.com for articles, videos, and tools curated just for passive investors. Until next time, this is Kent Ritter with Ritter on Real Estate. Now go out and invest like a pro.